0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18+. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea. Your host for today's interview with Alex Cesar, professor in the Department of History of Science at Harvard University. His book, The Scientific Journal, Authorship and the Politics of Knowledge in the Nineteenth Century, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. During the early weeks of winter 1660, in Holborn, central London, a German natural philosopher or in the parlance of the day, experimental learner, i.e. a scientist, a German by the name of Henry Oldenburg took up the post of secretary at the oldest national scientific institution in the world, the Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge. Oldenburg brought to the Royal Society an asset which any scientist today in 2021 would recognize and appreciate. Henry Oldenburg was well-networked. And in his role as secretary, Oldenburg's decision to vet the manuscripts arriving at Gresham College, first home of the Royal Society, by sending out those manuscripts to the persons in his network whom Oldenburg imagined best fitted to passing judgment on the methodology and the claims written there, this decision of Oldenburg's has taken on mythic proportions in the 350-plus years since, as the decision that created peer review and laid the groundwork for all else subjective, and rigorous, and creditable about scientific research and communication. I did say mythic proportions though, right? What I should have said was fictional proportions, because it turns out, Henry Oldenburg was not the natural philosopher whom most everyone, Wikipedia included, makes him out to be, nor did Henry Oldenburg send out manuscripts for review as most everyone, and Wikipedia too, would like to believe he did. Henry Oldenburg was a German, that's true, and Henry Oldenburg was hired by Robert Boyle as secretary of the Royal Society, that's also true. Much else you'll read about the man is fiction for scientific purposes, as distinct from just plain science fiction. You see, it serves the interests of many to discover a centuries-long lineage from the first volumes of the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, to the scientific journal as we know it today. However, the idea that there is essential continuity between early modern journals and their modern counterparts, writes Alex Cesar, has encouraged us to project back onto these earlier epics' 20th century sensibilities about what journals are for, the meaning of credit, the character of public knowledge, and even the nature of trust in science. Okay, that will sound convincing to most, if not all of you, but why should we care about the purpose of the scientific journals of bygone errors, or about the past changes to the principles of scientific research? Because those bygone errors are now, and those past changes are still in the process of doing their changing. Publishing groups have hijacked the integrity of scientific claims for impact factors. The economics of producing and of accessing publications is inequitably distributed across the globe. We need open science. We need platformed science. We need scaled-up science. These are powerful criticisms, again writes Alex Cesar. But so far, they have either not offered constructive alternatives or else they have implied that the conventions of scientific life that are being challenged once did exist in relative isolation from the influence of commerce and politics. In fact, however, much of what we are now observing is the latest in a pattern of appropriation, adaptation, and dissociation that cannot be adequately captured by blanket statements assigning praise or blame. It would very much seem, on the evidence provided in Alex Cesar's well-researched, well-argued, and well-written book, The Scientific Journal, it would very much seem that the scientific enterprise always has been far less the incremental advancement of knowledge, far less the neat arrangement of unambiguous data and figures and tables, far less the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake, and really, change upon change... Each change a changing of political views, of economic means, and of technological capabilities. Alex Cesar's The Scientific Journal is so timely and so necessary because the book explores the meaning of scientific authority and the place of periodical authorship as well as periodical reading in that authority. This is at the heart of all that's wrong and all that's right with science today. Alex Cesar's lesson in history is one we all stand to learn from. So let's begin today's episode, Alex Cesar and the Scientific Journal. Alex, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
1: Thanks so much. I'm super happy happy to be here and uh, really excited to uh, talk uh, more about uh, this book.
2: That's great. Um, Speaking about the book itself, this uh, had a long germination, you tell us, in the preface. uh, was... The result of many different projects that you'd been working on. Could you give us a background, maybe, as to where the idea germinated, why it was that you found this history needed to be written, and how the project itself sort of went along until the end?
1: Sure. Uh, That's a great question. It's a question I've thought about before and I haven't thought about in a while. So um, it's true that the project took a long time to kind of come together, and it, it was very much a project that snuck up on me. It was very much not a project that I started out thinking I was going to do by any means. Um, I was working way back doing my dissertation. This is going back 15 years ago now. Uh, I was doing a dissertation on sort of, I was really interested in uh, questions to do with how information has been organized. uh, That was connected to issues around access and things like that. And I was really focusing on the kind of early, early 20th century, which is the end of the story that's told in this book. And I had taken for granted um, a kind of basic point, which was that journals, um, scientific journals, some version of them had existed for quite a long time by that point, um, that really what we know a journal to be was pretty much pretty well set up by the late 17th or early 18th century. And that the story was uh, that I was going to tell about information organization, bibliographies, library organization was, was going to be some new thing that happened. That was pretty independent of the basic history of journals, which was pretty simple. And I actually, and quite frankly, I thought it was quite boring. I, I, I really thought that there was a fair amount of literature on, on periodicals and I thought it was important stuff, but it wasn't the kind of thing that exactly gripped me. Uh, and as I was writing that, um, I, you know, pretty late in the process, I, I came to write an introduction uh, to the, to the project and, uh, that I was, that I was working on. And as I wrote that introduction, I felt like I had to say something about, um, the changing status of journals. Uh, like why were people trying to sort of, why did people think there was a kind of crisis of journals in the late 19th, early 20th century crisis of organization? What was the role of journals in all of this? And I slowly sort of started to realize that well, actually, what it meant to be a scientific journal meant something quite different by the end of the 19th century from what it meant in the beginning. It had taken all these, taken on all these functions, and I talk about that actually right at the beginning of this book. I talk about how the scientific journal has come to be came to be seen by the 20th century as playing all kinds of roles that were in somewhat in contradiction with one another. They're both sort of how you publicize something, but they're also an archive. Uh, they were meant to get things out quickly, but at the same time. Um, they were supposed to be pretty well set sort of claims to knowledge. There was a lot of sort of contradictions built into what this format was trying to accomplish. And okay. and I started to see that part of that had happened in the 19th century, where all these new sort of functions were sort of grafted onto this um, format and this sort of genre of the scientific paper. Um, but as I wrote that sort of sort of kind of chapter one intro, intro I started to realize, wait a second, no, no, it, the, the story is actually much, much, more complicated than that it's not it's not simply that these things became more important or they took on a couple of extra functions what what people say is a, the, the sort of basic definition of what a scientific journal is by the 20th century especially by the late 20th century that particular sort of object doesn't really exist in any serious way in the early 19th century at all i i realized like i i just had not realized this i i this was the you know us historians of science like to sort of poo-poo the idea that there are eureka moments but i sort of had a kind of eureka moment at some point um, where i realized that this thing that i was writing about um, and and taking for granted hadn't actually in any serious way um uh, existed you know a century earlier and this is a and and, and that struck me as a story that i hadn't i really had no idea it was the case despite having read the literature and I was just, I was kind of blown away by it. And I started to sort of, I, then I did a, this big literature search to see, well, how did I miss this? What, why do, why do people say that this is this old format? And, you know, I could give you a long story. I haven't written about this, but like the, just the historiography of how it came to be that people thought there was this 300 year history of, of basic stasis after this sort of heroic invention moment that you mentioned through about Oldenburg. You know it, it was very peculiar but it was there and there's a whole other story about why that historical narrative came into being during the tw- more or less during the 20th century uh and, and came to be so powerful uh and so i thought well this is a story and so very very quickly kind of shifted my dissertation towards doing the history of the journal uh and i didn't have very much evidence besides this kind of like proof of concept um uh idea that something big happened here and i had some ideas about how it happened and then the next Then I finished my dissertation, which if you ever were to see it, you'd see it's this weird conglomeration of different subjects, because on the one hand, all the research had been done on this late 19th century, early 20th century moment. But the story was really about this earlier stuff that I had a kind of skeleton narrative for. And then, you know, I I finished the dissertation and I just then threw myself into research um, anything I could to sort of try to figure this story out uh, uh, with regard to the, uh, the whole 19th century. And and that took me another, I guess, you know, th- th- that this sort of eureka moment was really essentially happened in 2010 and, and the book came out in 2018. So there was a lot of research that then happened where I tried to kind of fill out the, the, the basics of this narrative. Um, and, you know, there's some constraints. I decided to stick to a kind of focus on, on Britain and France, which is pretty dissatisfying in some ways because it's, it's not the whole story, but there, a, a lot of pretty interesting things happened in in the british and the, and the french cases that that were consequential um uh and and i can say more about why that is uh uh but I, you know i set myself some sort of basic parameters to make sure it didn't get you know too out of hand and then i just i, I researched and i wrote uh the story got more interesting the more, the more i went into it i realized you know just political culture had a huge effect on on how things uh, developed i i realized there were just so many ways in which this story about this very sort of niche format had all these tentacles and all these other aspects, uh, sort of cultural aspects of 19th century life that um, made it this much richer story. And I realized that behind this sort of realization that there was a kind of pretty wrong narrative out there was a, a sort of key, one of the key reasons that this narrative had come to exist the way it had was this strong, strong desire to, by you know certain actors um, and, and people who you know care about science a great deal to make sure that this sort of world of science uh, and the sort of cultural world of science had, was was re- it was kind of cordoned off from the sort of messy sort of worlds of communication and culture uh, that existed everywhere else uh, and so one way one sort of one thing that this narrative of the scientific journal was doing was helping to sort of produce a story about how it was that. Uh, uh, scientific communities could indeed be kind of uh, uh, sort of protected from, defended from the sort of vagaries of the press, the vagaries of the market, the vagaries of commerce. Because the truth is, if you actually tell the story how it happened, it turns out that's not true at all. The very sort of forms of life that got built into science, partly through these publishing conventions, were often borrowed from this sort of messier world of commerce and culture. So that turned out, I thought, was a really interesting story and super important and relevant to uh, the kinds of debates that are going on these days with respect to changes in uh, not only formats and, and platforms, but also modes of evaluation and all of that. Uh, what's actually happening now is, is, is much more interesting once you understand this longer history.
2: I I very much agree on that point. And I also find the uh, idea that the narrative had a purpose. I mean, seldom does a narrative not have a purpose, right? There's usually some community, some set of interests that are driving such a narrative that there's something special about science. It's it's, it's cordoned off, as you say. If you take any, let's say, postdoc working biology today – it's very interesting to see the sort of double narratives going on in their minds. Um, I work in a, a, a writing program where I, I work very closely with biologists. And, and and the one is much as you've just described it. You know, we're doing here basic research, right? We're not pursuing any set of interests. We're trying to find out something. And yet every other part of their lives, and they'll admit it as well because it's just their daily routine, is Dealing with the publications, dealing with the grants, dealing with the position that they might have at the university or might hope to have, all the politics of the lab itself, and so on and so forth. So in other words, you know, the science that is actually happening is as messy as the scientific journal in its first 250 years of history, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a conglomerate of commercial and political and scientific interests and so on. Um, so I think it's just wonderful to see that it had always been that way. I think that's what, what comes out so clearly in the book.
1: Yeah, I I think that's true. The way you put it, that there's this sort of double narrative that you often get from sort of people within the field, I think is, is, is really apt. I completely agree with you. Um, historians and so, well, especially historians and, and some observers of science from the outside often take a view of their actors who are scientists that, that assumes that they're naive, often sort of pretty naive about all the sort of sociological stuff that happens on a daily basis. But actually when you talk to most scientists, they're as you say, they're, it's not so much that they're naive, but there are there is often a kind of double narrative. There's, there's a sort of set of ideas that I guess they've maybe been taught as the sort of folk wisdom of how things are supposed to work. You know, the, the, For me, the most obvious example of this is talking about peer review. I think these days, people have be, things have shifted in the last five, six years. But 10 years ago, when I would talk to you know friends of mine who are in the sciences about peer review, they'd often say, yeah, this is like very serious stuff. It's very important. It's the gold standard. But then you would just keep sort of asking the questions about, well, how does it actually work? They, their actual view of how it works in practice was always well it's a complete mess it doesn't actually tell you anything its it's 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 it's, it's a very sort of it, it, uh, unreliable process and and but I think they always felt like well there was a way it's supposed to work and and there's a, in practice it happens to be that in my field it doesn't work very well uh, and so they're they're actually completely aware of the, the sort of relatively complicated world in which they live the messiness of their world but it's not always the sort of view they take when they sort of Talk to outsiders about it, uh, and and uh, and so that sort of double narrative, I think, is indeed very present, and it's part of what has fueled the sort of very unrealistic stories we tell about these these formats.
2: And I find it interesting that it's the end of the 19th century where you had wanted to bring in sort of just a quick introductory note as to how things were before that, before you got into your actual thesis, as you said, and uh, in the book now this actually is brought up rather in chapter six, which is the end of the book. (laughs) So as a historian, Mm -hmm. you do go chronologically, that's wonderful. Uh, But this moment where scientific literature, as you call it, becomes that common point of reference, as we know it today, Mm -hmm. where, you know, the scientific journal would be be a thing that is, for the most part, especially in Britain and France, something that's recognizable to what you know, scientists will be reading today as well, that that move simultaneously comes about with calls to fix the scientific literature, that there's something not working correctly. It's almost as if our current system was naturally a a system that needed constant repair. Or, or would you say I'm thinking very much in the wrong direction? No, I think that's great. Yeah, I, 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 I'm I'm super
1: happy that you picked up on that sort of Idea. I think it's a a kind of a common thing. Once, one of the best ways to tell that a certain idea has really become fixed in in, in a community's mind is when people start complaining about that idea or that object, right? Uh, And I think that's very much what happened here. The best way to recognize the emergence of the scientific literature as something people care about is finding that people are complaining that it's not working the way it should. Uh, I think a similar kind of argument. that's connected to this book that, but I don't quite tell the whole story here is, is about sort of the history of peer review and refereeing. It's a similar kind of thing where the moment that people think this thing exists and has a particular function, they realize it's not actually fulfilling that function in the way that they, they they would like it to to do. Uh, And that's very much what happened here. I think, you know, I think it cannot be emphasized enough that this idea of the scientific literature, this sort of canon of texts, uh, that has a not exactly sacred some people call it almost a sacred function within the sign of the community it just people didn't talk that way about about um, you know uh, journal articles and things like that uh, bef- I would say before the the late 19th century uh, and and the moment that they did uh, the moment that they imagined that there was this canon of stuff that needed protection and organization uh, they they realized well it, actually it's really this is a pretty tough thing to organize and 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 sort of keep Pure, because it's not like there was any central body within a country or anywhere else that was really able to sort of regulate it in any serious way, Um, and and it was really something that was much more chaotic than that, and uh, it really had not nobody had exactly designed it to these purposes, right? It was a kind of evolution, borrowing elements from here and there. It was a big hodgepodge of stuff uh, that was supposed to you know that was turned out to be really important, and so you know. Again, the best way to sort of recognize the emergence of a sort of key concept often is is not so much celebrations of it, but um, uh, 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 worries about its its integrity.
2: Yeah, and the scientific journal comes out uh, in its first few hundred years of of uh, history, and your book as being as as you're saying something that's a bit of a hodgepodge. And what I find interesting though is the light that that throws on the scientific um, journal as it is today, or say today back through the last generation, so about the last 30 years. And it's, of course, typical to, you know, meet scientists and and meet people outside of science who think that, you know, the scientific journal is a thing. You know, it's like, it's it's a standard. There's something that you could point to and know what a scientific journal is. But anyone who, like you make very clear in the book, uh, is familiar with formats and genres know that, These things don't stand still and no one ever gave a diktat to say, this is how it must be. Right. And if you just look at recent, um, sort of coverage, say. Ten years ago of, of things that are just accepted as normal today in silico cloning, for example, in biology. If you read articles that use that method ten years ago, you find them explaining it in all sorts of ways, which now are already widely accepted and just in silico cloning itself is enough, right? You don't need to give that background. So, I mean that that in itself is a content development. Or if you think of the registered reports or the highlights that over the past ten years have become kind of standard, which You know, somebody looking at one in uh, a journal in the 1990s, they just, they they won't find it. It doesn't exist, right? (laughs) I mean, these things are constantly moving.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I think basic assumptions about how, you know, as you say, whether it's content or whether it's a format, uh, you know, a format can sort of become part of one's daily life very quickly, it turns out. And then, and it just becomes part of the background for how things work. Uh, and And that's part,, as you say, I think that's part of the reason that it can be so easy to quickly lose track of um, lose lose track of this the, the longer history of changes, right? There's always this sense uh, no, there's often been this sense, I think, in the way in which people are talking about how change is happening now in scholarly publishing that, oh, I think things were kind of relatively sort of stable for a while for a good, long while, and now things are being shaken up., uh, that's what sort of leads to revolution talk and sort of crisis talk and all that um and and a lot of that happens through a sort of studied forgetting of all the sorts of pretty big shifts that have gone on uh for a long time when it comes to scholarly publishing you know people talk about a crisis a lot um and I've, i since i wrote this book i've been doing a fair amount of stuff work on on the 20th century not not the whole you know not everything to do with scholarly publishing but aspects of it and it turns out that you know this is not at all surprising. Not only has th- have things continued to evolve throughout the 20th century. It's not like, you know, my book you could you could perhaps get the impression from my book that things stopped evolving by the early 20th century and then the story was relatively clear. But that's not true at all, right? The, the 20 the, the beginning of the 20th century is a good is a nice place to stop for me because again I can't do everything and, you know, it, it is the moment where I think you can say yes, this thing called the scientific literature comes to be seen as existing, um, uh, but things continue to change and the sense in which that system is, is, is in crisis. As I say, you already see it in the late 19th century as it comes to being, and the idea that there's, there's serious problems with how this works continues to be just a, a, such a constant narrative throughout the 20th century. Uh, the idea that we're going to come up with a whole new system to do this is, is basically somebody every five years is saying, let's change the system. Let's get rid of this whole system of journals and bring in something different. Uh, some, some version of that has been around you know forever. Uh, and and so that's really, really, really fascinating. And, uh, and, and that's and, the
2: value of, of, of the research that you're doing here into the scientific journal, I find, because it's it's the equivalent of, say, um, somebody who has studied, uh, you know, linguistic change and linguistic variation. And who knows that, you know, when a new technology arises or there's new scientific discoveries, then our vocabulary gets put to the test and new words come about and people are unsure of what they mean. So. When people in the 1990s were complaining about, you know, the way that people talked about computers and all this computer lingo, lingo, which today has become entirely normal, somebody who's familiar with, you know, linguistic variation and change sees that as an entirely normal process. But if we don't have that knowledge to fall back on, then we think there's a crisis. And I would say it's equivalent in the sense because you have uncovered for us a major organ of scientific work and the way that it actually has evolved, and the way that it actually works, and the problems that we face today, the crises that are called out, are really just a part of the system, if you like.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's basically true. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've seen an intensification of certain issues, um, and certainly we've become aware. Part of what's happening, happening these days is simply becoming more aware of aspects of this system that were there all along, but just didn't matter as much, you know, like at least didn't feel like they mattered or were harder to see. So um, the the replication crisis, uh, replicability um, is an interesting one. Now, it it could very well be that, you know, um, acts of fraudulent um, uh, sort of reporting of research and things like that have risen. but there, it's really difficult to get actually good evidence for that, right? Um, uh, uh, simply be, because it's just, nobody was doing these kinds of in-depth analyses of scientific papers in the past. And not only was it much more difficult to do, there's a whole, so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of really clever ways to sort of analyze the literature these days because of the format it has taken, the, the electronic format and the way in which uh, data is being archived now that you simply couldn't do in the past, and, and second, you wouldn't necessarily have cared to do it in the same way because the worries over um, the reliability of the literature, while they did exist to some extent in earlier parts of the 20th century, they've taken on far more uh, sort of ideological weight and and indeed almost commercial weight because some of the people who are most, some of the actors most concerned about the reliability of the literature are large corporations that want to, you know, rake uh, uh, the, the the literature to get a bunch of free information through which to you know produce new drugs and things so the the contexts for how the literature is used have changed so much that certain kinds of issues that might have been present throughout and to some extent certainly were present throughout have just been highlighted in ways uh, that all of a sudden you know it turns out this object that people sort of hoped was one thing is something else. And, and that then looks like a crisis because you want it to be this thing. It isn't this thing. So how can we make it this thing that we want to be, uh, uh more reliable in, in, in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. So that I, I think that that's, I think that's right. I think, you know, you know, in a sense, there's a crisis of record, right now, simply because people think there's a crisis. Right. And, and so we have to take that seriously as a crisis, but, um, whether it's a big shift in the reliability of the literature. Um, is, is very much an open question and probably an unanswerable
2: one. But it, it is very interesting the way that you qualify that as well, because it, it, it's, it's clear that a lot of these tendencies and a lot of these strains inside of scientific communication were always there, and yet certain ones of them are coming more to a head now, becoming more apparent. People think them more important. So to just sort of hit the nail on the head, I would think you would agree that in the 1930s, there couldn't have been a retraction watch like the website that we have today, um, because the motivation for that interest group just wouldn't have been present in that context back then. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons you wouldn't have had a retraction watch in the 1930s. But as you say, one, one issue, one reason for that would be the, um, the, the kind of larger, I think sort of framing motivation for sort of outside watchdogs who are, you know, not part of the scientific process to sort of keep tabs on the integrity of the biomedical literature, um, is completely, you know, shaped by uh, the notion that, you know, this is a world that is you know, uh, massively funded by uh, the state. And so it's massively funded by taxpayers. And so there ought to be, uh, there ought to be uh, safeguards uh, uh, in place if, if we're gonna have a community that is funded massively by the state, but is nevertheless sort of s- supposed to be self-policing, then that nature of that self-policing ought to be legible by the public, the broader public in some sense. Uh, and so that's, the, I think the kind of framing, uh, sort of argument for make make that kind of thing make any sense at all. There's also lots of practical reasons you wouldn't have had a retraction watch because you wouldn't have had retractions in the same way, because, uh, you know, it, it, what a retraction means is highly different in a kind of platformatized sort of situation in which everything's electronic uh, as opposed to when everything's in print, right? Uh, what, it, what does it mean to retract something when everything's being sent out in printed form is, is a much more complicated kind of question. Uh, And indeed, the very idea that you would retract something simply because it's pretty wrong um, wouldn't, for the most part, wouldn't have made much sense to people until relatively recently.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Um, maybe we should turn a bit more to some of the details of the book. Um, I, I'm particularly interested in chapters three and four. Maybe oh. I'll and, and and feel free to you know take the conversation into any of the other um, areas of the book that you uh, want to. But just to begin um, with chapters one and two, you 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 catch us up to about the middle of the twenty uh, middle of the, excuse me nineteenth century. So you give us the importance there of uh, the French Revolution and the journalists who are writing about science and their position outside and next to the scientific societies until these really interesting points in Britain and France, as you said, your, your, your sort of focus countries, uh, focus regions, where uh, it once was the radical outsiders in Britain but then it becomes the elite men of science who are calling that, uh, yes, we need to be publishing our, our results or also Francois Arago and, in in, in in France and, um, his work there on intellectual property and how that put forward sort of rival visions to what, um, what science had been up to that point. Could you maybe give us a sketch of, of that quite important moment as, as I read it anyway, in, in the mid uh, 19th century?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, if if it's okay, I might I'll push us back into you know, chapter two a little bit. For to me, I agree that sort of that, you know chapter two, three, four they're all about this moment of this shift from a, a world in which um, uh, journals um, of various kinds were were a, a played an important but you know a role in in sort of how science was communicated. But uh, you know they were one format among well there are many formats among many formats you might say. Uh, to a, to a sort of shift towards this idea that, that journals really mattered in a really sort of deep, deep way. Uh, and, and you know, you bring up Arago, uh, who's sort of this one of the perhaps the most prominent actor in the book who comes up in, in several different places. Uh, and he, what's interesting about him is, as you say, he's very much a kind of powerful central figure within um, France's scientific community. But, you know, is well known across Europe, uh, uh, indeed. Uh, relations with many people in many different countries uh, who indeed at a relatively young age becomes one of the uh, perpetual secretaries of the Academy of Sciences in Paris, one of the most august scientific institutions uh, in Europe uh, and, and, and by extension in the world um, who really sort of has the, a notion that that, that that science ought to be this sort of broader public um, uh, uh, good. Um, now, what, you know, as, as the book points out, what it means to be a sort of broader public good is, is up for great debate. And there are many people who thought Arago was um, people to, basically to the left of Arago who thought he was actually a kind of imposter in some sense in, in making these claims. And, and that, that's actually a reasonable thing to think. But nevertheless, here's somebody who um, is, is suggesting that for uh, the sort of scientific enterprise uh, uh, to, to be legitimate, it needs to sort of uh, uh, make an attempt to reach out to sort of broader publics. Uh, and, and one way to do that is to sort of put, put stuff out there uh, in print as fast as possible. Don't just sort of hoard, re- researchers shouldn't hold, ho- hoard what they're doing in sort of relatively small groups, even small groups as big as the Academy of Sciences, because that's still a pretty darn small and elite group. Uh, but it should be put out there quickly uh, and in ways that um, uh, can be made accessible um, to at least a broader research community in some sense. And so he pushes that idea. Um, uh, there are people to the left of him, so, so radical uh, Republicans, people like uh, Jacques uh, Frédéric Seger and Francois Vincent Respai, who, um, who, well, like, they agree with Arago generally about that, but they actually don't think Arago is doing it correctly. Uh, and so, one of the things that, the, what I think is sort of the key moment in the book, the, the, if you, if, is this moment where these august bodies, such as the Academy, Begin to sort of allow for a certain amount of sort of public reporting on on what they're they're doing. So in France, this happens actually in daily newspapers. Amazingly, in Britain, it happens in these commercial scientific journals that are usually not connected to any society or anything like that. And a certain amount of this kind of reporting is allowed, starting in, in the 1820s, uh, in public news in public papers uh, in both Britain and France, kind of around the same time, but not exactly at the same time, and for different reasons. Um, that reporting uh, sort of de- develops into a kind of de facto sort of um, uh, uh, reporting, not only for a broader public, but also for uh, the scientists themselves. They find it very useful to have these short reports about things. Uh, and in France, it takes this really interesting turn where um, even for who was actually in some sense encouraging this kind of reporting, uh, allowing this to happen through kind of third parties, people like uh, radicals, people like Raspai and Seiji, turns out to be problematic because, well, okay, you can make things public, but what if the people who are making it public are doing so in a way that is not favorable uh, to to the members of the academy, or at least to your friends in the academy? And so it's that moment of tension between wanting to be public and at the same time trying to control the way in which this stuff becomes public that uh, Arago decides to um, actually produce a kind of in-house newspaper-like journal for the academy and that's the rendu still around and very famous um, which is the sort of uh, which is not the first journal that has the, you know the short sort of papers in it but really one that sort of sets the terms for later ones uh, where uh, uh, it, it, basically the idea is rather than having reporters come in and report on what people talked about let's have the authors themselves write short notes about what they're talking about at the academy and put it in this journal in their own words that way we can kind of control the narrative uh, and that sort of idea, so you know, what's cool about that is the basic format was based on you know, newspaper columns, like it was re- literally aping newspaper columns. They literally hired a newspaper editor to manage this new scientific journal, a uh, uh, fellow named Roulin, and then they put it out themselves every week. Uh, and depending on how you looked at that, that was either like an s- amazing sort of magnanimous sort of uh, 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 gesture to sort of let the public know about what's going on at the academy in its own words. It was a gesture to sort of make the academy very public, uh, which is certainly how Arago saw it and some of his allies saw it. Or you can see it as, um, you can see it two ways. Uh, actually, I guess there's three ways to see it. So that's the positive way. There's two negative ways to see it. One is, uh, what it's, if you're s- somewhat more conservative than Arago, uh, people like Jean-Baptiste Biel, you might say, well, that's terrible. Now you're sort of, scientists are being forced to sort of just kind of be kind of self-advertisers, whereas they should just be focusing on the research and trying to get it right. Now they're sort of trying to race with each other to put these little short notes out. You can't even tell whether anything's true in these short notes because you don't give any of the data, you just give the result. What a terrible thing for science. This is going to lead to all kinds of trouble uh, uh, turning science into a kind of turning the academy itself into a kind of advertising bureau. That's horrible. On the other hand, you could say, well, actually, it was much better when you had all these independent reporters reporting on what's going on at the academy, what the academy is doing by putting out its own journal is trying to silence that sort of broader, richer public discourse about what's going on in science by kind of trying to sort of uh, stamp out this sort of independent reporting with this one official report. So you could see it in these different ways, uh, uh, negative And if, if you're Arrigo's friend, positive, uh, but you can see just in that sort of decision in that moment, a kind of, big shift in the way in which these sort of uh, 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 prestigious scientific bodies interface with the public and the way in which they uh, uh, sort of, the way in which they exist. The, the Côte Rendu completely changed not only how the Academy reported on itself, but how the Academy worked, right? Meetings, meetings themselves completely changed because of this. So that that moment, and especially the Côte Rendu as a kind of model for later periodicals, including things like nature and science in the later 19th, early 20th century. Uh, is super, super important, is really the kind of linchpin moment for the story. The Arago continues to matter because once he's sort of produced this sort of new format, he really leans into the idea that this is the kind of publicity that matters in science, this kind of print publicity through short articles that you put out quickly when you discover something. And so that sort of leads very directly into matters of intellectual property, because you, you know, the, the idea that you have to put something in print in order to get credit for it, the sort of idea of sort of priority, you get priority by publishing, really only makes sense. It's only sort of possible in a, it, once you have um, a, sort of a means of publishing quickly, right? So you need to have these relatively authoritative and regular periodicals that researchers have access to in order to uh, 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 publish something quickly as a kind of, to make a priority claim in that way. So one of the things that Arago then does to kind of cement this idea that print publicity is what matters is to say, well, the way in which you go about sort of getting credit for something in science is by making it public. Uh, the act that is creditworthy is not just discovering something, which you might have thought, how do, you, how do you become a famous scientist? Well, you discover stuff. Uh, no, no, no. Yes, you have to discover stuff, but you also have to give it to the public, right? It's a, that's the kind of that's the that's the exchange. You give stuff, stuff to the public, and then you get praise. Then you get um, rewards. Uh, and the way you do that, not only do you have to make it public, but you have to make it public through print. Uh, and so then that becomes that's a you know, that's basically not only is that a claim for how science should work, but it's really a political claim about um, uh, how
2: that community works. And that leads to If I might just jump in, what what I find so neat about that, how that community works, which and a lot of ways has stayed uh consistent yeah i mean a lot of the things that you're just describing there from arago and the results of his you know move into publishing and taking it into the academy of sciences are you know the ways that things are actually going on in publishing at the moment. And, 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 and the thing that really strikes me is you, you talk about the, the positive and the two negative views on this. In a way, all of them are possible because all of them are partly true. You know, I mean, this, this, <laughs> this, this, uh, this self-advertising moment of that is also how you claim to have discovered something is in print. It's clearly partially true. This idea of generosity is also true because you're making it accessible. But the interesting thing is this idea, as you were talking about it, as controlling the narrative, maybe even if you like a sort of censure comes about, because um, what you're doing is you're asking people who are outside of your area of expertise really to believe you, because even today, where we have, you know, the methods and the results, and it's not just simply a newspaper article anymore that that we're given... um, you 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 mentioned in many different parts of the book, you know this question of, of of a public. Who is it that you know can benefit? Can I mean access is one thing, but who is it that can actually benefit from these publications? And even back then, it would have been more so with the with just the results and not knowing how they were arrived at, or only knowing if you were very familiar with that particular area. So. It's, in a sense, a believe me sort of message that goes out because of the reputability of the people who are publishing and because of the fact that it ends up in print, really. Oh,
1: yeah, I think I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, uh, there's a this is a a relatively obvious thing, but there's this myth out there um, that, you know, what makes a scientist a scientist? It's that they're highly skeptical of everything. They don't believe a claim until they, they can see it with their own eyes. But. You know, anybody who spends any kind of time in the scientific process knows that it is ridiculous. Uh, most everything that everybody believes in the sciences is, is stuff that they've, been, that they've been given to believe through reading papers, through education, through being told by their colleagues, through textbooks. Almost everything anybody in the sciences believes is, has come through trust. And the formats and genres through which a lot of that stuff, you know, comes to one's eyes uh, matter a lot for generating that trust. Maybe they matter a little less, you know, one of the things, maybe a lesson of the book is they actually matter a little less than one might think. There are other means through which people come to, uh, and perhaps more important means through which individuals come to trust a particular claim, and, you know, personal contacts matter a lot. Um, but as you say, um, clearly what is being debated in a lot of this, in a lot of the, um, uh, 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 the debates that I follow in this book are the means through which, you know, uh, uh, such trust can be uh, uh, vouchsafed, you know. Uh, and, and so, you know, and, and there the sort of the nature and size of this public or this imagined public, uh, obviously matters a huge amount. Uh, so if we're talking about very small groups of people, the methods you're going to use to produce this kind of, uh, sort of trust in a claim is very different if you're uh, from what, if you're imagining a very large group of people with varied f- forms of expertise or indeed, uh, not too much expertise at all.
2: One of the wonderful things. Um... That uh, goes that, that you mentioned in the book is this this book of nature, and how uh, the you know the entrance of the uh, scientific journal onto the scene starts to change conceptual conceptualizations of how it is that a scientific discovery can actually be communicated and and how it would be told or explained or presented. So, I mean, if you just take the generation of of Charles Darwin and you know the major discovery of of evolution then or evolutionary processes then i mean there we have a book still and it's only you know <laughs> not even a full generation later that people are really already on the side of 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 the article right i mean the article yeah. needs to be the way that it is and and what i found so interesting about that is it, it, it is true today scientists who are you know on the edge of their research area aren't reading books You know, I mean, if they are, then they're crime novels at night for fun. (laughs) Other than that, you know, their work is not done in in books. And the conception of of nature there or their, you know, object of inquiry, to be a bit more precise in today's uh, terminology, is, you know, uh, a line of research that you can never begin reading or end reading, whereas a book certainly conveys an entirely different understanding of its object of inquiry. There does seem to be, you know, clearly definable uh, boundaries to what it is and what it is that's been said about it, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think I I, I like thinking about the ways in which, so a lot of what we've been talking about so far has been the kind of nuts and bolts of how does this stuff actually work. What you're bringing up now, I think is, is sort of equally important and maybe something we don't talk about as much, which is the ways in which these formats help us to imagine what no, what knowledge consists in, what it is, how it works. Uh, and, and, you know, there's lots of evidence and I give some of it in the book that individuals have been thinking about that the ways in which the for, formats inform, you know, uh, their, their conception of what science is, what knowledge is uh, and how that's shifted over time. And, and as you say, th- that has practical and also sort of ideological consequences and, and books, the sort of that a very idea of the book of nature with a beginning and an end and a kind of some kind of a structure to it, uh, a sort of synthesis that's built into it is has been you know a very powerful metaphor for nature for centuries. and that in in many ways that that metaphor continues on, you know, but alongside it are all these other metaphors um, that come from these other sorts of formats uh, you know and and the the big one for the nineteenth and early twentieth century, I think you know indeed was, was was the, the 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 article, which was just this sort of this idea of this sort of little sort of speck of fact. Uh, you could argue that the whole early sort of early 20th century European philosophy of science, which had to do, with so these people named the logical empiricists or logical positivists, who imagined these sort of theories built upon these uh, uh, sort of elemental facts, uh, sort of depended upon this sort of imaginary of knowledge that that came from the journal article. Uh, and, you know, these days, the emergence of platforms uh, is doing something similar, you know, uh, to these imaginations of knowledge. Uh, when you think about things like, uh, you know, these, these claims about how uh, sort of theory is, is disappearing through the sort of um, uh, uh, rise of data, all of this is connected to the rise of the this sort of ima- these imaginaries are connected to these. Uh, uh, rising formats and platforms that are sort of shifting how knowledge is communicated. So following those narratives kind of gives you, I think, a kind of backbone through which to look at the more detailed stuff that's going on in terms of the, the nitty gritty uh, that that, 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 this, that my book uh, sort of follows um, as it sort of tries to tell this broader story of the sort of imaginaries of knowledge.
2: And uh, as to the way that it tells its story, the book, it's very interesting where it situates itself in historiography generally, and, and in, in specific, of course, in connection with the history of science. You give us a short um, sketch of work, say, by Harry Collins or Simon Schaefer and Stephen uh, Shapin, and give us also the... Uh, basic focus that has been put onto formats and media and other areas of communication of science outside of the typical expert community. So the newspapers, the catalogs, the abstracts and patents and offprints and index cards, just to name a few, and discover in that moment that there's a gap that the scientific journal itself had, uh, before your book, not had a uh, a place in the research. It hadn't been picked up, um, which could be rather surprising for many people because you would think that that would be where people would have started.
1: Yeah, I, I, it, it's it's a very funny thing. And it, it's, it's, it's really, really striking. Uh, you know, to, to sort of recap very quickly uh, what I was talking about there in terms of these different traditions, I think, you know, a lot of history of science uh, up through the mid 20th century, shall we say, into the 60s was sort of you imagined science as this entity that was more or less closed off from, you know, the, the broader public. And the, and it was basically a history of ideas and bi- biographies of the people who came up with those ideas. And you could follow those ideas by following the journal literature. And, and if you're doing older stuff, by following the books. And, and and you would just read the books, you would read the journal literature, and you could construct this sort of emergence of these ideas. And there was a very strong push against that within history of science as it really professionalized in, the, say, the 1970s. Uh, to say, this is uh, this is mostly fantasy. This is not what science actually looks like. Uh, you know, it, it, this was see, this was queued up by scientists themselves, people like Peter Medawar, who has this famous paper, you probably know, I think it's called, Is the Scientific Paper a Fraud? Uh, and Medawar just points out that, you know, an actual paper so it tells you nothing about how something was actually discovered or what was going on behind the scenes. So take that idea and say, let's do proper history of science. Let's get behind the scientific literature. So one thing that happens is to say, let's, Let's look at, well, not only should we look at the archives to look at the letters, but let's really um, look at how people interact beyond this sort of sort of formal um, uh, uh, sort of facade of the literature, papers responding to one another. What's actually going on is a whole lot messier, uh, is a whole lot more interesting, actually, through all kinds of micro sociological things that are happening. Um, and, you know, so there's a huge amount of work of that kind connected to this movement called sociology of scientific knowledge, but not simply connected to that um, uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, And especially somebody like Stephen Shapin, you might say, was one of the key people who said, let's do this in a different way. Uh, and let's really look at personal relationships. So there's that on the one hand. The other thing that happens, almost independent of that, but not entirely, is people said, well, yes, it's true. The scientific literature is like so far from what... What, what, what the sort of be all and end all of what happens in science? Let's actually look at all the other kinds of formats and genres and places that people are publishing um, uh, uh, about science in some way that actually do inform and are informed by the sort of those expert um, uh, uh, discussions and things like that. So let's stop f- focusing so much on the scientific literature and let's focus on everything else. And so people looked at novels, people look at um, popular magazines. People look at other kinds of books, people look at, you know, um, uh, pedagogical instruments, uh, instruments themselves. People looked at everything other than journals because it was exactly journals you have to get away from. Uh, and so that and it, all that is great. Like that was both of those moves are really important moves to have made it as a field. Uh, but it led to this very funny and ironic situation where people were all of a sudden historicizing everything except they left alone the journal because it was the thing that you weren't like it was it was it was sort of the it was, the his, historians didn't like articles as much I mean you, you you'd still read the articles but you couldn't tell a good proper history of science in these new veins by just focusing on the published literature um and so ironically you, you what was left was this sort of caricatured notion of what a scientific journal is that nobody actually, very few people took up in any serious way. It's a, if you actually interrogated almost anyone by the 1990s about this who was a historian, they would, of course, agree that the journal is not this sort of stable genre that's existed for hundreds of years. Well, they might, but, but but nobody actually was actually writing about it. Um, nobody, it's, well, very few people. Actually, I mean, I shouldn't, I should, you should never say nobody was writing about it. Of course, people did write about this to some extent. Um, it was out there. You could look for it. If you were looking for it, you could find, you know, hints here and there. Um, and in particular, I would say in some ways, that, that some of the best early writing on this was, was happening in, in, in Germany um, uh, uh, rather than anywhere else. In, in the uh, Anglo Anglo-American context, mostly what you found was celebrations of the format, I think, you know, going back to Oldenburg um, and, until uh, relatively recently. Um, and so, you know, uh, it just led to this very ironic result that for, for good historical reasons, people moved away from focusing on journals, which left the journal completely unhistoricized. Uh, and we had much thicker histories of these popular science magazines than we did of, uh, you know, um, Journals such as Nature, uh, which now uh, Lindy Baldwin has written a, a book about, uh, et cetera, and so now we're we're starting to get some thicker histories, uh, more realistic histories of some of these periodicals.
2: Uh, that so we scientific- have we have in so we have in hand here a, a book yours, the scientific journal authorship and the politics of knowledge in the nineteenth century, which is a pioneer work. Then, um, congratulations.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it, it, it you know I don't know if it does it well, but it certainly I think is the first book that um, you know, actually tries to sort of size up the format itself in any really serious way. Um, certainly I think I can't, there, there's no, there just are, are no other books that really try to do that, um, or had tried to do that. I think that's, that's true. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, the story that I tell is still a highly partial one, right? There's a lot that's missing, uh, uh, particularly all sorts of other national and regional contexts that are left out of this book. Um, but, you know, you Yeah, that's start one somewhere.
2: point that I want. It, well, that's one point I actually wanted to just pick up briefly just to hear, um, because you've also said that your work has carried you, you know, and, uh, since uh, you finished this book um, in many different directions. And I wonder if there's anything that would uh, you would be able to say to catch us up on there, because you make this interesting statement in the introduction where you say we are not yet at a place where global history of the scientific journal can be written. And there you mention places which get mentioned clearly in the book, uh, Germany, rather interestingly, um, other places in Europe, East Asia, the Americas, and so on. Um, Germany offered a alternative model to the scientific journal up through at least the 1920s. And uh, there you show very quickly how that got just sort of overtaken. But there's obviously other narratives in other places going on. Um, is there anything that you could maybe just give us as a taste as to what's out there
1: yeah i mean I, so i still think we're not quite there i think i think it would be very cool if, if a few of us could at some point sit down and write a book that was a sort of broader both sort of temporally and geographically more capacious um story or sort of more inclusive story uh, uh about the sort of emergence of these formats um and and you know we're, we're making progress in that direction uh uh, and you know, there's a whole bunch of work going on on the German context now. Um, there's some good work going on on the sort of for the 20th century sort of Indian context uh, and and uh, East Asian context. I think you know, if we if we were to tell a story about this, especially if it were a story that sort of went through the 20th century, it, it would be it would you know be really interesting and 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 a different one. You know, what obviously this format, some version of this format, ends up you know getting picked up in a lot of different places. Um, and in some ways, forced upon a lot of places uh, through um, you know um, essentially a sort of uh, a sort of imperial uh, sort of expansion of uh, sort of uh, 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 the scientific enterprise um, and and sort of imposing a particular vision of what sort of natural knowledge is supposed to look like on on other places. And so part of the story would be about how that sort of process happens. and certainly the work that i'm doing now um, focuses especially on things like kind of back to the original project in some sense but more a more expanded version of it which was sort of focusing on these sort of databases and information infrastructures and the ways those are turn out to be often and sort of in deep ways connected to modes of evaluation and you know metrics and things like that and so you know certainly one of the stories that we can tell about this, the, the, one of the global stories is the sort of resistance to and um negotiations around um what it means to be a scientist in an international sense uh that sort of notion of the international scientist is kind of a you know it's a, again it's a kind of late 19th century invention that has a long kind of uh, sort of arc over the 20th century and into the 21st century uh, and you know to be a to uh, claim claims are made that you know to be a, a scientist that has a kind of, that, that is a real scientist, which is say an international kind of universal scientist, means doing science in a particular way, which is not just about methods and things like that, but also about modes of publicity, modes of publishing. So part of the story is the kind of you know uh, uh, negotiation back and forth about what it's going to mean to be a kind of international journal versus a local journal, what's going to, mean to be an international scientist versus a kind of local scientist who only matters in their local context. And part of that story is, about the ways in which very, very specific and local notions of what it means to publish uh, and what it means to publish well are, are kind of imposed as if they were international standards on, on other uh, on, on other parts of the globe from places like London and Paris and Boston and New York uh, and imposed elsewhere as, as sort of the international standard that must be followed despite there being actually relatively local uh, standards that then um, uh, uh that then sort of take on this sort of outsized importance so that's part of the story that I'm telling now for the 20th century um, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that I don't know about um, that that you know that that needs to be worked out still to sort of get a broader sort of longer longer stroke um, uh, history of all of this stuff uh, the, the, I should say, you know I should say something about the German case as you say part of my argument for um, why I end up you know focusing on Britain and France is it, it Germany versus Britain and France in the 19th century is really interesting, because on the one hand, in terms of just the bulk of literature, there's more in Germany than there is in Britain and France through basically the entire uh, 19th century. And yet the way in which scholarly publishing works in Germany by the early 20th century bears less resemblance to the way it works these days than uh, you know, what's going on, especially, say, in Britain in the early 20th century, and even to some extent the U.S., and so, you know, it's, it's a kind of funny or sort of origin story. But if you really want the full story for how all this works, you obviously must look at uh, sort of Central Europe to get to understand if it for no other reason to understand it could work differently. You know, um, I tell a story that is about sort of how key elements of what we took to be the scientific journal were sort of cobbled together in Britain and France. And there are these, you might say, paths that were pretty well established but ultimately not taken. Uh, in the uh, in the in the German context that that I talk talk less about. So there's an aspect of my book that the way it's constructed is almost a little teleological, right? I've gone to the places where I think a lot of these mores of of publishing life were established, um, but there are these other really well established ways of doing it um, that that, um, that 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 can be talked about as well. And so, you know some people have done that some some of that work, um, but a kind of synthetic history that would do it all it would be a really tough thing to to write and it would be a collaborative group project
2: well alex uh thank you you've been uh, very generous with your time i I do have one last question which you've touched upon in 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 answering my previous one but i'm still going to give it to you maybe give it a slightly different spin um could this book your the scientific journal have a sequel the scientific journal two authorship and the politics of knowledge in the 20th century. And I suppose the spin I would put on that is, I mean, whereas the previous question had been about, you know, giving us a more comprehensive picture, what would be the natural follow up, even if it is on this teleological sort of framework, what would be the natural follow up to your book? Or would you see that next project as not being a book, it would need to be something else? Or um, I don't know, I I, I leave it to you. What, What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I guess this I i I'll still kind to of follow up with where we just were. I think a, a natural follow-up that s- did some of the important work for the 20th century. That that some of some of the work that I do in for the 19th century would I think ha- uh, you couldn't tell this story well for the 20th century without making it as regionally sort of inclusive as possible. I think the 20th century is 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 a moment for sort of farming out. Uh, the, the format elsewhere, um, uh, It's this, it, the 20th century is, is the century where, well, it's the second half of the 20th century where you know referee processes become super, super important. Um, and that matters, again, in a kind of global context, because these procedures for sort of vetting um, and evaluating um, become uh, uh, sort of come to be seen ultimately towards the later 20th century as sort of central in Anglo-American context in particular. Uh, and then are imposed everywhere else um, for through a whole set of sort of weird uh, 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 mechanisms, partly through, but partly through these databases. So the other thing that's really th- th- what the 20th century is, is crucial for is the emergence of databases that actually works. So there's lots of attempts to create these large bibliographies in the mid to later 19th century. I talk about some of them in my book. In the 20th century, it becomes more possible to do that kind of work. Uh, and what's the, the irony of that is that these, these sort of large attempts to sort of encompass the literature, to create maps through it, um, as a means of being, helping people to see that literature actually has a knock-on effect, which becomes almost the, the, the principal effect of, uh, uh, for, of the function of these systems, which is to sort of allow people to sort of size up, um, and and compare and measure um, productivity and things like that, uh, and and it's through those and I'm thinking especially in, for the 1960s uh, of the Science Citation Index uh, and some of these other databases that that are based upon it uh, attempts to sort of uh, size up what constitutes the important literature as opposed to the stuff that really doesn't really matter, uh, and to understand that process is what is it absolutely means understanding how those systems those measures those databases function uh, differently in different national and research contexts uh, and, and, and end up, in fact, shaping those research contexts in, in deep, deep ways. Uh, and, and so looking at that sort of broader story of metrics, of measurement, of, of, uh, of, of, uh, uh, of attempting to sort of create these sort of totalizing systems, uh, is one way in which you could tell that story. That's sort of the kind of stuff I'm doing now. So if, this is what I'm talking about. There's other ways to do it, but all of these ways I think would have to sort of focus, especially on uh, sort of broader international context, which is so much of what the 20th century was, was about. Um, even as um, the, what it meant to be international was really, really often problematic and, uh, 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 and, and, and indeed shifting. Uh, and it's still, sort of shifting. It is still sort of shifting uh, 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 as as we move forward now. But that's part of the story that I think would really matter uh, uh, for the 20th century. I mean, there's so many other things we talk about: the rise of the sort of large publishers, which is also part of partly an inter- story about sort of international science, um, and then the rise of open access at the end century's end. Again, something that you you can't really tell without sort of focusing on the broader international context.
2: Uh, well or the one I, thing that's staring me in the face now, and I can't believe I haven't brought it up yet. Um, if we think of the early modern period, where you know the national languages then finally found, uh, right. their, own, found, found their own against Latin, and then mm. up into the early twentieth century, we have German, French, and and English at least as as languages that are being published, and and now we have English.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's obviously so that the 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 sort of winnowing down into English. Is you know one arguably one of the effects of these sort of database systems that I'm describing here, right? So uh, uh, if you want to be part of a certain database, it pays to be in English for all sorts of reasons, uh, and and so that's one of the ways in which that happened. There's a, you probably I don't know if you know it. There's there's a good book uh, that came out about 10 years ago now, very much uh, well actually less than 10 years ago maybe five, six years ago. Uh, that's very much sort of telling the contours of that story up into the present. Do you know um, Scientific
2: Babel by uh, Michael Gordon? i not sure I'm familiar, but uh, oh, thank you for so, citing yeah, it. Scientific so, Babel so, by Michael yeah, by, Gordon, by, you, you Michael said. Michael
1: Gordon, G-O-R-D-I-N. Um, very good. Uh, th- that's, that's a great book that sort of tells the contours of that story with some you know attention precisely to some of what I'm describing here. Um, but there's, there, there is this, obviously the language question um, as connected to journals and which kind of journals are deemed to matter is absolutely crucial. Uh, and it does seem to me that there is a li- there's a there's a pretty strong link between the winnowing down into English and the rise of these sort of totalizing databases uh, that are not simply means of sort of helping people find stuff in the literature, but are also uh, uh, absolutely crucial to individuals careers because they're used as a means of sort of sizing up who's published what where uh and who's published the most important stuff because you can you turn citations into a metric of importance and and relevance and things like that and so those databases and their their focus on english language content which they've always had basically uh at least the ones that i'm thinking of science citation index and things like that um, have, have been one of the factors that has driven, I think, um, the, the winnowing down into English that has happened in the, throughout the 20th century.
2: Well, uh, thank you very much. That is Alex Cesar, and his book, The Scientific Journal, Authorship and the Politics of Knowledge in the 19th Century is out with the University of Chicago Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Alex. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Daniel. This has been wonderful and this is goodbye to all of you and bye bye and until next time here on Scholarly Communication
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra
0: just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block